Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest uh, here today, my name's Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope, and uh, I'm honored to open God's Word with you this morning. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can go ahead and get ready. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning, and just hold your place there. We'll get there here in just a few moments. Uh, As you know, in the life of a church, the month of December can be pretty active, and so we wanted to make sure that you knew a few things. One, uh, as we say every week, if you'd grab that Connect card that's in the seat back in front of you and fill that out, and I can't stress this enough, it it can become pretty routine for you. Just filling that out week in and week out. But when you write your prayer request on the back of that card, our elders meet uh, once a week. And we genuinely pray over those prayer requests. They get typed up and sent to us. And all week we can be praying. And we gather together and we pray over what you put on the back of those cards as a prayer request. So fill that out. When the offering uh, is passed later on, you can drop it in there. Uh, A few things this month just to keep you aware of. Next Sunday at 5 o'clock is our annual church meeting. The way this works is uh, here at New Hope, we're going to put before you who the elders have selected to be an elder or a deacon or to serve in a variety of capacities around here for 2018. And you guys get to affirm uh, or uh, raise any concerns you might have for who we're putting before you. And so you can grab the ballot uh, right out at the Welcome Center in the lobby. In addition to that, you can grab the bylaws. We're proposing a few changes. And if you're a member of the church, you can speak into that. If you're not, we still want to invite you to come. Uh, We'll look back at 2017. We're going to look forward to 2018 and see what God has for us. You'll learn uh, where we're at financially. We're going to be able to accomplish quite a bit in that meeting. And so we want to invite you to come and be a part of that next Sunday. uh, Make plans for that. And somebody did ask, just to be clear, no absentee ballots. So you got to be there to turn that thing in. So thank you for that. Uh, After that, so the following weekend, the 17th, we're having what we call a hymn sing. And we're just going to gather in this place at 4 o'clock that Sunday, and we're going to sing Christmas songs together, kind of like an evening of worship together with the church. And so we want to invite any and all of you to come and be a part of that. And then last, the next Sunday, as you know, is Christmas Eve. And uh, we're very excited about that morning. We're going to have our Christmas Eve services at 8 o'clock, at 9.30 and 11 o'clock in the morning. We'll be sending some things home with you. Uh, We've been kind of gearing up this whole sermon series. We'll culminate that morning as we celebrate Christmas Eve together as a church. If you walk around the building, other than the ones on the stage, you'll see Christmas trees scattered throughout the building. The kids are designing ornaments every week of the sermon series, and so you'll start seeing kids hanging their ornaments uh, throughout the building. We just want to really have everything culminate in that morning, and we're pretty excited. So make plans to join us and invite somebody that Sunday morning as well. Housekeeping items out of the way. Let's jump into this sermon series. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being present with us this morning. Like Renee said, we don't want to take that for granted. It can become so routine for us, but we take seriously that we are opening your word, that the creator of the universe made a decision to speak to us through the development of the Bible, and we open that right now uh, with reverence. Uh, Father, we are excited to hear from you and what it could mean in our lives and what it should mean in our lives. And so we ask you to speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know uh, if you've got a friend like uh, this friend that I've had since I was very young. Uh, he's a very unique guy. In fact, he, uh, it's very broad how much I could share, and I need to save some of it for other sermons. So we're just going to focus in on one element of this guy. And here's, here's one interesting thing about him. I've never met anybody who slept harder than this guy. He could sleep through anything. Now, where we grew up, there are these things called hurricanes that smash into the state. They're very loud storms, and they create a lot of destruction. 
He's never seen one, though he grew up there because he slept through every one of them. Um, when we would travel, we were on a travel basketball team together, and this was what was awesome. Uh, this guy would sleep so hard in the van traveling to basketball tournaments that we would have a, just a lot of fun with Sharpies. And so uh, we would draw all over his face and his arms, and he would, we'd go into like a Cracker Barrel or something, and he'd walk in and have no clue that he was wearing glasses or somehow grew a mustache since we left for the trip, and we would just have a field day with him. Um, in addition to that, we got to college. Uh, one day, he's sleeping in the dorm room. So if you're in college or you're about to be, take note. Uh, this is so good. Uh, we went into his dorm room, and he's sleeping, like sleeping, sleeping. And so we broke into the janitor's closet, which we were fined for later, so no emails. We paid our dues. Uh, we stole the garbage bags, the leafing garbage bags, the real big ones. And we took a vacuum cleaner, and we turned it on reverse. And we blew up all the garbage bags like balloons. And then we went into his dorm room, and we, from floor to ceiling, wall to wall, completely filled the dorm room with garbage bags that looked like balloons. And so when he woke up, he was kind of pinned to the bed and had no clue what was going on around him. And you just heard him moving, and he's breaking the bags and coming out angry. It was so worth it. It was awesome. Never met anybody in my life who could become so comfortable with his surroundings that he slept right through them. Everything. He missed so much of his life. As a matter of fact, he was influential in getting me to make a decision to be baptized into Christ, and he slept through the baptism. Uh, we were at somebody's house in the back of the swimming pool, and he went in the other room, and he fell asleep the whole time. And everybody's like, yeah, and they're celebrating, and he's just sleeping through the whole thing. I mean, he slept through everything. As I was kind of reading up on this a little bit, this, this idea that people could sleep so heavy, uh, psychologists have this term they use, and it's not for sleeping, but it's for something similar. And they say that you can become nose blind to things, meaning that you become so familiar with your surroundings that you don't longer, like if you walk into a room and it smells, your brain will turn that off, and you will become so familiar with it. Now, if you've been here at New Hope for a little while, okay, uh, since we did the renovation, you knew that for a little while you'd walk into this room right here and you would smell like, and you'd begin to ask yourself questions in your head. Many of you were kind enough to leave the questions in your head. Others were not so kind. But you, uh, you would begin to ask questions like, okay, there's a dead animal somewhere in here and we got to find what wall he's in because this room reeks. And we didn't know we had a broken vent back here that was feeding into this room. And so we're trying to figure it out and it smelled so bad. But what you didn't probably figure is that after about three or four minutes of being in the room, you no longer smelled it. Until you came back the next week and it was new to you again. It was like, oh man, that smells so bad. And then two songs into the service, you're like, it's fine. Don't, none of that, all right, right now, because it's fixed. We fixed the problem. But you become nose blind. You become so familiar with your surroundings that they no longer stand out to you. And so here's the question I have for you. Are we sleeping through Christmas? Meaning, I don't know what your family is like, but mine, Christmas starts on Black Friday. There's no such thing as Black Friday for us. It's Christmas Friday. And so my wife, I mean, we go out, we get the tree, we decorate the tree. There's Christmas music in my house from before everybody wakes up. And then you're doing hot chocolate and a Christmas movie, and you're just celebrating and having fun. That, if it were up to my wife, we would celebrate the 4th of July, and then Christmas would start the next day. But at least she waits till Thanksgiving gets what it deserves, Okay. And we wake, it's just Christmas. And before I know it, I walk in the house, I don't even notice the tree. I don't know if you're like me, but like, okay, yeah, the house is decorated, there's Christmas music. And I just kind of become used to it. It just is there. It's this other thing. And I'm convinced that that's what happens just about every year during this month. We start going through the Christmas motions, and we just kind of get used to it. We're comfortable with it. You hear, hey, we're doing a Christmas series on, or a sermon series on Christmas, and you're like, oh, yeah, cool, another one. This is my 45th year in the church. I've heard everything there is to know about Christmas. And you just get so comfortable, right? 
And, and we're, we're nose blind to the beauty of this incredible story. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but there was already elements of this story that were read during the service that may not have even impacted you because you're blind to the beauty of the story. I'm right there with you. I need a reminder. I need a wake-up call. I need to be jolted to remember how incredible this story is. And I need that experience over and over and over again. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. Now, I don't know if you know much about Luke, but it's one of my favorite Gospels. Here's why. Luke begins to write his gospel because he's been commissioned by a friend of his, a skeptical friend named Theophilus. And oftentimes I feel like I can relate to Theophilus. I was skeptical. And I needed somebody to present to me, hey, why is this true? And so Luke gets this expense account. He goes and he begins to research and do all kinds of study. And he gathers all the facts. He says, Theophilus, here's the story of Jesus. Here's why this is so important for you and for your life. And part of that story is the Christmas story. And he begins it in verse 26. He says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So this is like a, the Galilean region, about 45 miles to 60 miles, somewhere in there north of, this is where Mary would have been located, north of Jerusalem. He goes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And so now you have uh, the angel coming to speak to Mary, this young teenager, Okay? She's not even in her 20s at this point. She's a teenager. She's not married yet, and she's poor. I don't know about you, but when I'm recruiting people to lead something, I'm recruiting people to think about owning something, the natural human tendency is to look for people that are qualified or overqualified. Right? Think about it. Mary was a woman in a culture that did not highly value women. Mary was young in a, in a culture that did not highly value young people. We know that. Why? Because the disciples scold the children for coming to Jesus. Remember that? So we understand that the youth weren't looked highly upon, okay? And she's poor. She has no money, no status. Nobody's following her. She's not important. But the, the angel is sent to her. She's not married yet, but it's during the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So it's important to understand who Elizabeth and Zechariah are. Zechariah is Elizabeth's husband. Elizabeth and Zechariah were unable to have children their entire married life. Now they're old, okay? And you read about this earlier in chapter 1. They're older now, and Zechariah is a priest, and so not thinking much. I mean, obviously they had prayed for that prayer, but I think it probably got to the point where they're not praying that prayer anymore because it had been so long. And so Zechariah is in the, in the temple doing his priestly duties, and the angel Gabriel, same angel, appears to him and says, hey, I want you to understand that your wife, who's barren, is going to have a child. <coughs> she was unable to have a child. She's going to have a child. He says, hey, um, how's this possible? It's not possible we're too old. It's just not going to happen. This is not something that can take place. And the angel does what I think a lot of women wish he would do to their husbands during their pregnancy. And he says, hey, you're not going to be able to talk for the duration of the pregnancy. You just be quiet. All right. And so now his mouth is closed. And I think that's probably been a prayer of a lot of women during pregnancy. It's probably a prayer of my wife during all four. Just, hey, make him quiet, Lord. <laughs> and so he is. And so now during the sixth month of this pregnancy, the angel comes to Mary and he has a message for her. This outcast, this underqualified, this nobody, is about to receive this incredible message. And here's what the message says, verse 28. He comes to her and he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now he says that and immediately she's kind of startled and scared. And she said, it says here that she was greatly troubled at the saying and now in her mind she's trying to discern what does this mean, what's going on here. I don't know what scares you, what kind of fears you have in your life. I think there are healthy fears and unhealthy fears. 
I'm scared of snakes. There, I said it. And so this past week, I'm reading up on one of the things I'm scared of, okay? And I just want to add some context to this. I was here late at night by myself, whole church building dark, and I am going to be able to tell you, it was like later at night reading this past week, and here's what I encountered. I read about the Discovery Channel special that took place a few years ago. I'm reading about this man who decided he wanted to create a Teflon suit so that he could be the first person ever swallowed whole by a snake. And I'm like, oh, who, who does that? Like, who invests their money in this? And so he gets an anaconda. Now, I don't know if you know much about anacondas, but they are 35 feet long and can swallow a 350-pound animal whole. So that's cool. This guy wanted to be swallowed by one so that he could be the first one. And later on in the article, it says when in the Peace Corps, for those who are going to go serve in the Peace Corps in the Amazon, there's an instruction manual for how to encounter an anaconda. Okay? And so there's nine steps to make sure that you follow if you're to encounter the thing I'm scared of most in this life. And I'm reading this late at night by myself in this large, dark building. And here's what, I, here's what it says. Number one on the list. If you encounter an anaconda, don't run. Okay? It says that the anaconda is fast enough to catch you. My thought is, let the anaconda prove it. And <laughs> I don't have to be fast. I just have to be faster than you. Okay? No greater love, right? All right. Number two. Lie straight and keep your arms close to your side and your legs together, okay? I, this only gets better, friends. Number three, tuck your chin in, all right? So just become food, all right? Number four, the snake will come and begin to nudge you and climb over your body, okay? So you're picturing this, yeah? Number five, it literally says this, do not panic. <laughs> Now, if ever God created a situation for panic, this was it, right? Number six, the snake will probably begin to swallow you from the feet end first. Do not try to resist. At this stage, it is especially important not to panic. <laughs> oh, this is so good. The snake will begin to suck your legs into its body. This will take a long time. You must lie perfectly still during the entire process. Okay? This is if you happen to encounter one. Number eight. When the snake has reached your knees, slowly, with as little movement as possible, reach for your knife. Then insert the knife gently between your leg and the snake's mouth and rip forward, killing the snake. Number nine, make sure you have your knife. <laughs> Look, there are healthy fears that save your life, okay, and there are unhealthy fears that create paralysis and prevent you from moving forward with your life. When this angel appeared, Mary had a very healthy fear of this angel. See, when angels appear in the scriptures, they don't appear like the Cupid Hallmark style angel that you decorate your house with. When an angel appeared, it was such an important moment that oftentimes people mistakenly began to worship the angel. They'd bow down and the angel had to say, no, 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 don't worship me. I'm just a messenger. There's oftentimes they'd show up like a warrior and it would create all kinds of fear in the life of the people that are around him. So when Mary encounters this angel, it's not like this, oh, you're so cute. It's like, what is going on around here? And then what really startled her is the way the angel addressed her. He said, you are a favored one. And remember the context of her life. She understood she's a nobody. I'm a young teenage girl. I'm not even engaged. I'm engaged. But I'm not even married yet. Why am I favored? Why would God pick me? I live in Galilee in Na near Nazareth. The poorest of the poor live here. We're nobodies. Not to be selected and chosen. The angel senses this fear in her. 
And he addresses it in verse 30. He says this, The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. There's a lot here in this, but some of the things that really stand out. First of all, as a dad of four children, uh, one of the things that I take great joy in is selecting the name of my children. Mary didn't have that option. The angels would say, you're going to name him Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but the name Jesus literally means God saves. And so she is learning from this angel, you're going to name your child God saves. And the story begins to take a shift. This isn't just an ordinary child that you're going to have, Mary. This isn't just an ordinary kid. See, so understand the founder of every other religion. I, I teach a class on Christian worldviews. And so having studied and read through some of this stuff, what I've learned is this. Every other ideology in history, every other religion in history, every other worldview in history, the founder of those religions always comes and says, I'm coming from God. And I have a message for you about how to save yourself. You have to go do this or accomplish this. Every other one of them. But in Christianity, the founder of Christianity, Jesus says, I'm not coming from God. I am God. And I'm coming into your life. I'm coming into your world with my presence to change everything. I'm going to come not to tell you how to save yourself. I'm going to come to tell you how to, what I'm going to do for you that you are powerless to do for yourself. I'm going to accomplish what you could not accomplish with your behavior and with your rules. I'm coming into your world to offer you my presence. No other religion or ideology believes that or holds to it. You see, Christmas, it's more than just the traditions, guys. It's more than the Christmas tree decorations and visiting with family and buying presents and eating cookies. All that is fun and good. Christmas is about the presence of a holy God among his people. And when that truth, we become nose blind to that truth. When we become indifferent to that truth because we're going through the motions, we miss out on the most important part of this season. I've been uh, in ministry for a few years now, and one of the honors of my life, one of the reasons I really like ministry, genuinely, I like it more than preaching. I like it more than anything that we've done this morning. I love what we're doing, gathering together as a church. But one of the things I feel like God has called me to is to walk into the house and sit in the living room of suffering and hurting people. And at times that can feel like a big burden, but it always ends up being a great blessing. Let me tell you why. The most important part, when I get to walk into these homes and sit with families that have experienced grief and suffering and tragedy, is not that I walk in with all the answers. I don't walk in and they're asking questions and the most impactful thing I can do is offer the answer to those questions. Even when I have the answer to the questions and I've offered it in the past, and they like the answer, and they believe the answer that I offered them, it pales in comparison to the impact of walking through the front door and sitting next to them and being present in the midst of their suffering and their pain. Look, when it comes to all other ideologies and religions and worldviews, they can teach us a lot about suffering. They really can. You read up on it, they'll tell you how to view suffering, how to cope with suffering, how to overcome suffering, how to see it from a different perspective. But only in Christianity does God come in and say, I will be present in the middle of your suffering. I will enter into your tragedy, into your heartache, and I will sit with you and I will be there. Only in Christianity does God offer us his presence in the confusion, the tragedy, and the suffering that this life will deal us. That is the beauty of Christmas. Don't sleep through that. Don't become nose blind to the presence of God all around you. 
See, Mary learns this important truth that God wants to be present with his people. And she learns it because he says, your son will be the son of the Most High. Essentially, what he's saying is, he will be the son of God. There's another way of saying he will be the son of God and he will usher in the presence of the Holy One among his people. And then he says he'll sit on the throne of David. That promise comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised King David that his kingdom would be established. And that kingdom, there would be somebody who came from his family line that would sit on a throne of a kingdom that will last forever. And it's not about dominance, it was about presence. That God will be done with allowing suffering and death and evil to rule and he will enter into it and write himself into his own story. Mary hears all this. And it's overwhelming to her. And she has some real honest questions. And she asks one of them in verse 34. She says this, Mary looked at the angel after hearing everything that he had to say. And she said, how is this to be? I'm, since I'm just a virgin, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. So this whole baby thing doesn't work. I've never been with somebody. I, it's not possible. How, how's this going to work out? I, I hear what you're saying, but how, how's this going to work? I love this response for a variety of reasons. I love the honesty of her question. One of the reasons is because one of the most common things I hear about pe from people, and I heard it you know, just recently from people that I really care deeply about, their biggest struggle with deciding whether or not Jesus can be the Lord of their life is that they don't know why he's the only way to God. They'll say things like, hey, I get it, man, everything makes sense, but like, how could he be the only way to God? How come there's no other path to God? Why can't any of these other ways lead to God? And what they're saying there is they're not recognizing what Christmas is really all about. You see, Jesus never said, I'm a path to God. Jesus said, I am God. I am God come to be with you. There's a big difference. He's not like any other ideology, religion, or worldview, or philosophy. He's different than them all because he's the only one that says, I'm not here on behalf of God. I am God. And I'm coming to, to save you from something you're powerless to save yourself from. I'm here to be present in the middle of your life. The next thing people usually say when I'm in, in talking to them about this is, well, that's fine, and if I lived back then, in simpler times, I might believe that, in times where that was more acceptable. But Rob, don't you understand that over the years, we've advanced so much in education, academia, and technology, that that's just too hard for me to believe. And when I hear that, I, I, what I really hear is you haven't done your homework. You see, this was not something that Mary was like, I knew it, this is awesome, I knew, I, I knew I'd be picked. She, she doesn't say that, she's not like, oh man, I... I knew the Messiah was coming, and I had a hunch it'd be through a poor teenage girl. I just, and it was me. That's so cool. Like, she never does that. This was as startling to her as it is to us today. It was as relevant back then as it is today. If you study worldviews back then, you come to understand that day and age, they believed what's called the Greco, it's a Greco-Roman worldview. And what they believed, the Romans believed, is that the material world, the physical world, is polluted and evil. So the thought that God would come and live in it was just no way. Absolutely not. I'll look at all Eastern worldviews and philosophies and ideas. They all believe that the material world, the physical world, is nothing but an illusion. And that you'll reach a point of what's called enlightenment, or God will bring you out of that illusion and let you see reality for what it really is. And the physical world has no meaning. See? So this would have been a foreign idea to them. Then there's Judaism. And the Jews had such a high view of God that they couldn't even speak his name. They couldn't even write his name down on paper. So the idea that this God would become human, that this God would be born as a, ba a baby, completely foreign idea. You understand, this was a foreign concept to them. There is no worldview in history that had room for this, that planned for this to be a part of the story.
Tim Keller says it this way. He says, this teaching is not and cannot be a product of any culture that has ever existed, east or west. This teaching is absolutely not the product of some train of thought. I love that because it tells us that the incarnation, the story of Christmas, God come to earth, was not a first century idea. It was not some cultural concept. It was as relevant to them as it is to us today. It was as important to them as it is to us today, and it was as much truth today as it was when it happened 2,000 years ago. Now, the other part of what I love about Mary interacting with this angel is the question in and of itself. I mean, the nature of the question. If you remember just a little while earlier in the chapter with Zechariah, he asks a similar question. He says, hey, what, hey, how's that possible? We're too old, not possible, can't happen. He says, all right, zip, you're quiet. And, and then he comes to Mary, same angel, and he comes to Mary and he says, hey, Mary, you're going to have a child. And she's like, hey, how's this possible since I'm a virgin? And she gets the response, well, Mary, all things are possible with God. Nothing's impossible for him. So was this a schizophrenic angel? Did like Gabriel bump his head on his way from Zechariah? You know, six months had passed. Did he forget? What, what's going on? No, it, it, it tells you the difference between honest doubt and dishonest doubt. See, there's a difference. Anyone who tells you that there's no room for doubt in the Christian walk is lying to you because they've experienced doubt themselves. They've just deceived themselves. See, doubt is a welcomed part of the walk. God is not intimidated by your questions. He's not scared of them. Doubt is a part of the Christian life. You see, honest doubt is a question that is genuinely seeking an answer. It wants the response. It wants to know what the answer is. A dishonest doubt, it's a question that doesn't want the answer. I'll ask the question, but I already know the answer. I don't need the answer. I don't want to hear the answer. I'm assuming the answer. See, Zechariah assumed that he knew the explanation to the question he was asking. So in his dishonest doubt, he didn't want to hear what the angel had to say. He was going to inform the angel. This isn't possible because we're too old. The angel says, no, you're missing it. Sorry, be quiet. I'll work through people that'll listen. And he goes to Mary. Mary is like, hey, I, I hear what you're saying, but like, how's it possible? How's this going to work? Because I am a virgin. Like, what? And she's genuinely desiring the response. She wants to know what the answer is. This honest doubt, this I want to know the answer kind of doubt. I'm willing to do the hard work of seeking the response. I'm not going to be a coward and ask a question that I don't want the answer to. That kind of doubt requires two things. Requires two different things. First of all, it takes humility. And I'm convinced that this is the hardest step to make when you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life. It's the hardest step. Because in humility, you have to recognize you don't have it all figured out. You, you don't have all the answers. I don't know what everything is about. I've tried to live this life for long enough, and I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strategic enough. I can't control it enough. I just don't have all the answers. And in humility, you ask the question that you know you don't know the answer to. And you seek the answer out. Recently, I got asked to come and meet with a young man. And I got to spend some time with him. I'd never met him before this meeting. And through a series of connections, I was asked to come and sit with him. And so I'm sitting with him. And uh, they said, hey, he's got a really difficult story. And we want you to meet with him. And if possible, maybe disciple him. And he's not a Christian. So I said, that's fine. Okay. So I'm sitting there talking to this young man. He begins to tell me his life story, and it's one of the hardest stories I've ever listened to. The kid's been through more than anybody ever deserves to go through. And he begins to tell me how he overcome it, and he worked hard, and he got to where he is, and how his future goals and his plans. And then he asked me about my story, and through God's providence, our stories were similar. I said, hey, man, I've actually got quite the similar story to you. And I began to walk him through my childhood and, and the things that I had walked through and been through in my life. 
I said, but I came to this point where I realized, like, no matter how hard I was working, it wasn't getting the job done. It wasn't good enough. I couldn't overcome this. And in humility, I had to start asking some different questions. I presented that to him, and his response, and I'm, I'm hoping for more meetings with him, but his honest response was, my hard work got me out of what I was in. I believe it's strong enough to get me where I want to go. And in my mind, I was thinking, until you can't work hard enough, until it fails you, and then what? See, I believe we all have two options. We can approach with honesty and ask honest questions in humility, or we can be humbled when we realize we don't have what it takes. Either way, you come to this place where you're going to need to seek honestly what the answer might be. The second thing that it requires of you is courage. You see, asking really honest questions takes courage because you know you're going to get an answer, and it's kind of scary to think what the answer could mean. A lot of times when we ask difficult questions, the answer requires us to change something about ourselves that we don't want to change. It requires that we change our ideas, that we change our mind, right? That we, we look honestly at what needs to change in our character and our behavior. Sometimes it requires that we apologize to people that we've hurt, and we don't want to do that. Sometimes it requires that we have honest conversations with people that we care about. Sometimes it requires that we confess sin and admit struggle and get help. And it takes courage to ask those questions, knowing that the answer won't always be what's most comfortable, but more often than not, our comfort wins out over our desire for real answers. See, with Mary, she asked an honest question, knowing that the answer might not be what she was looking forward to, You see, what's fascinating about the question that she asks is that if the answer came back the way it was set to come back, she's a young, unwed, poor girl. And I don't know if you've checked this out or if you've noticed this, but pregnancy is kind of hard to hide. (laughs) And in her village and in her culture, that was not good news. And so she asked the question knowing the answer might not be what I'm looking for. And what I find so beautiful about honest doubt is this. I've learned this in my life through seasons of doubt that every single time, God will always meet you in the moments of your honest doubt. Always. When you're honestly seeking what God wants and what He says, He will meet you in that place. Every single time. Now, verse 37 or 38 says, right, the angel comes back and he says, hey, nothing is impossible with God. I don't know if this verse has ever ministered to your life and your walk with the Lord, but there's been seasons where I lost my mom and she was a believer. I had the joy of baptizing her a year before she died and I had to hold on to this hope that this verse connected me to. Nothing's impossible with God. I've gone through seasons of frustration and doubt about my calling in in ministry. I've gone through seasons where I've had to make decisions that were really, really difficult to make. I've gone through seasons where I've had to seek people's forgiveness and stop seeking people's approval. And it's been really hard, and this verse has seen me through that. But here's what I learned about this verse this week that is so beautiful about Christmas. Had Mary not honestly doubted, we wouldn't have this verse. Had Mary not asked her honest questions, we wouldn't get this nugget of truth that is ministered to so many people. You see, God always shows up in our moments of honest doubt, and he does for us more than we could ever ask or imagine. Look at how the angel meets Mary in her moment of doubt in verse 35. The angel answered her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is really fascinating. The angel is saying to her, hey, what's about to happen doesn't need a husband, okay? 
What's about to take place doesn't require that. This is going beyond that. And he says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, if you were to translate this in the original language, the original language was called Greek, okay? And so in, in this original, it's actually technically a dead language at this point. It's not spoken anywhere. But Greek, if you translated this, it literally reads the Holy will come upon you. Right? And, and you will have a son. The Holy will come upon you. Not the, so translator tried to, translators have tried to smooth it out and so they put the Holy Spirit or the Holy One. But here's what it's like. It's really saying, Mary, it's not just some Holy One that's coming upon you. Holiness itself is going to be formed inside your womb. Holiness itself is about to enter the story unlike any other period in history. Holiness itself is going to come and be present among His people. It's not just this special thing. It's all things. It is all of holiness. It's not an element of holiness. It's all of holiness. Holiness itself is going to come. And Mary, that's going to change everything. That's going to change everything about your life and the life of everyone who is to come after you. And sometimes we can become nose blind to that fact. The creator of the entire universe was entering into the story. And he said that changed everything. And Mary's response is incredible. She doesn't have it all figured out. She doesn't know everything, but she knows enough to respond in verse 38. She says this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Like, I don't have it all figured out. I don't know all the answers, but I know enough to make this decision. Do you see what she's doing when she does this? She's completely submitting to God's plan. She recognizes, I can't control what's about to happen, but I can submit to it. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the solutions, but I know enough to submit to this truth. Now, here's what I've learned about faith in and, and Jesus. When you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life, and the only time you're ready to make Jesus the Lord of your life is when you've done a cost-benefit analysis, you've never made him the Lord of your life. See, Jesus and the life of Jesus doesn't fit on a spreadsheet. It can't be typed into a formula where you get to control the outcome and understand every single element. But God always gives you enough to make a decision to submit to his plan. Courageously, she asks questions. And when she received the answer, she was courageous enough to submit to what God was calling her to. So my question for you is this. As we begin this Advent season, what will you do this Christmas to make sure that you stay awake to the beauty of the gospel? What are you going to do in your life between now and Christmas morning to make sure that the power of this season isn't lost, that you're not nose blind to it, that you don't sleep through it? I'll give you three quick things. First is this. Ask honest questions. God's not scared of your doubt. Ask honest questions and courageously seek and submit to the answers. Number two, recognize and enjoy the presence of God in your life. Look, we're nose blind to his presence all around us, all the time. And I don't know if you got, you guys are third service, so probably not, but I don't know if you were up early enough this morning to be driving, but early this morning, I'm driving in in the moon today. In the morning, this full moon, it was beautiful and unbelievable. And those moments jolt me. They're like, boom, like, wow, God, you are present here. And like six-tenths of my drive, you, I didn't even recognize your presence. But now I see something, and it reminds me you're here, and you're present with me. I can listen to a certain song, and it jolts me and brings me to the place where I recognize his presence. I'm no longer nose-blind to it. All right, last night I'm sitting there watching my Miami Hurricanes get humiliated and I'm laying on the couch watching uh, this high school football game and my daughter comes. It's college, but they didn't play like it. And so he's, she comes walking in front of the like, TV and I'm laying on the couch, she comes walking in front of me and in this moment, like it was just so cool, like this moment hit me and I'm just like, she's so beautiful. Like, man, God, you're good. 
Like I'm not paying attention to other things around me right now. I'm just like blessed because I know that through my little girl, you reminded me of your presence. I don't know what it is for you, but I know we have an enemy who loves to distract us from God's presence in our life. And you have to do everything you can to stay awake, to be reminded that he is everywhere around you and that he did everything he could to be present with you in your life. Last is when you recognize that, submit completely to his plan for your life. Submit to it. Recognize you don't have what it takes, but in that moment, he'll meet you and he'll guide you. Be willing to change the parts of your character that need to change. Be willing to make the difficult decisions that he calls you to make because on the other end is a life that he can provide that you're powerless to earn. It's worth it every single time. So my question for you this morning So are you sleeping through Christmas? Let's pray.